Well, as we return to the book of Ruth this morning, we come to chapter 3, and a big theme of rest is going to be put before us. There's a certain kind of rest that Naomi desires for her daughter-in-law. And it got me thinking this week about what is rest. And you know, there are many different kinds of rest. You can rest bodily. Uh, Lord willing, all of you got some rest last night. You were able to close your eyes and enter a comatose state we call sleep uh, for at least a few hours. And most of us need more sleep than we actually are giving ourselves. Um, Rest can also come in forms of just mental rest. You just, you need to take a, a break from the normal routines of life. There might be rest of heart. Um, and I, it's funny, when I, I just, I do this from time to time, probably like you do, I threw the word rest into Google just to see what might come up and if there were any interesting stories or articles or whatnot. And the, one of the things that came, at the, came to the very top of that search this week uh, was a local company uh, rest and relax day spa. And I thought, ooh, that, that's very appealing. Like, wouldn't we all love to have a day where somebody else would worry about all the things that we needed and we, we were free to just rest and relax? Uh, the charge for that alone would be stressful for some of us and <laughs> not allow us to enter into rest and relaxation. You can take time off work. You can recharge your batteries. You can put your feet up. Uh, you can take a nap, you can sit back and relax. Uh, there are all kinds of ways where you can get a kind of rest. But the rest that's in view in Ruth 3 is the kind of rest all of us ultimately are seeking because it has to do with security. It has to do with protection and provision. And there's not one of us here who could say, nah, I don't need that kind of rest. We all do. Would you open your Bibles to Ruth 3 if they're not already there? And I want to read this chapter. Uh, it is a, is a shorter chapter than the first two, but close. So you follow along as I take a couple of minutes and read Ruth 3, and then we're going to pray together and then work our way through this portion of this beautiful story. Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the edge of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that which you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. 
Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray together. Father, we continue to thank you and praise you for your word, which is alive and powerful. It's designed in your perfect wisdom to penetrate to the deepest places where our souls and spirits come together. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And we ask that on this day you would take this piercing, living word and take it to the deepest places of our hearts that we may be transformed. Would you first of all expose those places of unbelief and sin that we might turn away from all that corrupts us and even hinders us from knowing your love and fellowshipping with you, serving you obediently and finding our rest. We also pray that this living, penetrating word would expose those places of weakness in our hearts that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Redeemer and knowing Him as He is, be able to rest, to wait on you when it's appropriate, to work hard when it's appropriate, but all because we know our Redeemer and are confident that His love for us is unfailing. His resources are unending that his determination to do us good will be unhindered. Oh, Lord God, we need this Redeemer. So come to us, Lord God. Meet us where we are, but do not leave us as we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, there is a worthy Redeemer who comes into view. But look, look at the opening verses of this chapter here, and, and we're going to see the three main characters acting, thinking, responding to some things, and it opens with an expressed desire from Naomi, and she, she desires something really good for her daughter-in-law. She desires rest. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? And, and the first thing I want you to notice here is that Naomi feels a responsibility is on her to do something seeking rest for you. That is a place of tranquility and repose. Now, in chapter one, if you can remember a couple of weeks ago, um, we looked at uh, verse nine, where uh, Naomi was making an appeal to her two daughters-in-law, saying, I'm gonna go back to Bethlehem. Naomi, you and or- or Ruth, you and Orpah should just return uh, to your, your mother's house initially, but look for a husband, and may God give you rest. That was a prayer that Naomi had prayed, may God give you rest in the household of a husband. Well, this is resurfacing here. And Naomi feels a bit of responsibility for Ruth's 
security. And so she initiates a plan. That's the second thing I would want you to notice here uh, as we look at this text here. And she, she recognizes potential. She says there's a relative of ours. And she's aware of God's law and the cultural customs, and so she calls for a particular preparation and says to Ruth, wash yourself and anoint yourself. That's, that, that's simply clean up and put the perfume on. Uh, we, we want you to look good and smell good. And, and that next phrase, put on your cloak, we, we should understand that better as put on your best clothes. And, and the ladies know how to do this, right? I mean, I've watched it in my house, two daughters, a wife. I mean, when, when ladies want to look good, they can look good. And yeah, it's a little extra work and effort, but you know, there's a purpose here. And so mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, they get it. And, and Ruth is fully on board. So Naomi's instructing Ruth, uh, not, just to, not just to get prepared, there's also another little note. This would be consistent with, if not a direct uh, expression of, of Naomi saying to her daughter-in-law, it's time to put the mourning clothes and the season of mourning away. We know you, you were heartbroken to lose your husband, but that's in the past. We're moving forward in faith. And so she lays out a proposal. Look at this. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now that if you dig into a variety of commentaries, what's, what's unfolding here, if you go and study it out, you will see some that actually try to guide this, frankly, in an immoral way, that Ruth is actually seducing Boaz uh, and, and going to enter into an immoral uh, moment of physical intimacy. But... Let me give you just a, a little note here. While some think they make a strong case for that, one of the principles of Bible understanding and interpretation is that you, you never take one little verse or even word out of the context of the whole. And frankly, context will often tell you what to do with individual words or little phrases. And the context of this story from the beginning, and you'll see to the very end, is that these are people of faith People of worth, which we defined last week, has to do not only with Boaz's capacity as a wealthy man, but he's an honorable man. We've seen that honor in Ruth's life to this point, that she willingly forsook her past heritage, her family, the familiarity of Moab, and attached herself to this woman, has worked hard to this point through multiple weeks of harvest. These are honorable people. It's not taking a dark turn like that. So if you happen to have a commentary on your shelf that wants to point at that direction, you should probably at least X out that page and say, missed it. These are people who love the Lord and want to honor him. I think in the end, the suggestion that Ruth is making to Boaz is probably nothing more than a practical idea for making a man slightly uncomfortable in the middle of the night. Just like, you know, when the covers fall off of you on a chilly night, you wake up at a point and you realize, I'm cold, and you want to cover up again. So just, you know, pull his cloak or his blanket back from his feet, and when his feet are cold enough, he's going to wake up. Uncover his feet. I know, it seems a little odd, but verse 5 uh, Ruth seems to agree this is a good plan, and she says, all that you say I will do. So now we come uh, to Ruth's appeal. Look at this. Verse 6 says, she went down to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. 
At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And now she makes her appeal. I am Ruth, your servant. She doesn't identify herself at this point as a Moabite. And now the, the substance of the appeal is found in the next sentence. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's a humble appeal in the first place because she is identifying herself as a servant. She recognizes that socially and even economically she is subordinate to this man. It's a humble appeal that recognizes in many ways she has no right to be there. You also see, though, her courage, if not audacity. I went back and forth between those two words. It's a courageous request for sure. It might even be audacious And I think you can make that case. Now in chapter two, we heard Naomi also say to Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And now Ruth says, you are a redeemer. Let's talk just a little bit about what is a redeemer, what is Boaz Boaz in light of God's law and the, the cultural context in which they are dealing with. Well, if you do a little word search, see how it's used in the Old Testament, you'll find that it refers to one who has the ability to bring another person into safety and security. A deliverer would also be uh, a word that you might find uh, helpful in understanding this. And the term, if I can just quote from a commentary that gives a little more formal explanation, the term describes not a precise kinship relationship, but the near relatives to whom both law and custom gave certain duties toward the members of the clan. And here are the two primary duties, and I think it's important. First of all, the Redeemer was responsible for the repurchase of property that was once owned by clan members, but sold from economic necessity. And it does seem like the land that was once Elimelech's has at least temporarily been transferred, and so there's some land consideration here for those redeemers who were in Naomi's clan. Secondly, the redeemer was also responsible to actually redeem or purchase relatives who, because of economic hardship, had actually sold themselves into what the Bible describes as slavery. Now, it wasn't slavery in the sense that the the ugliest, lowest form of slavery that we often think of. It would be more like you just hire yourself out and say, you know, if, if you can give me Uh, some kind of compensation, whether it be a place to stay or meals on the the table for me, I will work for you. I'll do whatever you want. But it was considered a, a form of slavery. And so the Redeemer had those responsibilities, both according to God's law in Leviticus 25 and also the customs of the day. So Ruth's just going for it. And it even seems like, because Naomi had said, just just go meet the man at the threshing floor and do whatever he tells you. It seems like Ruth thought this thing through. is like, I'm not just going to wait and sit back. Like, I'm just going to put it out there. Marry me. And that's exactly what she's saying when she calls him to spread your wings over your servant. Now go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 12. And if your Bible like mine, uh, you don't have to turn back a page for that. Do you remember what Boaz actually said to Ruth? The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She, he commends her for the life of faith that she has begun to live. Well, now Ruth takes some of that same content, and in one respect, she's kind of asking him to be the answer to the prayer of blessing that he prayed over her. 
she's, she's smart and savvy. She's not using his words against him, but she's aligning herself with the expression of his faith. The prayer that he had just prayed over her recently. As one author uh, writes of this particular portion, portion, Ruth is subordinating her own happiness to the family duty of providing Naomi an heir. And I insert that because it's important. You could just get so swept up in the fact that, oh, in the suite, you know, here's Boaz. He doesn't have a wife. Here's Ruth. You know, she's a widow who needs a husband. And ah, uh, but there's a little more to it that her marriage proposal to Boaz really does have her mother-in-law's best interest chiefly in view. And you're going to see some of that reflected in just a moment when Boaz responds, because he's going to mention something that we, we don't know the specifics of this, but it's a significant point. But let's pause right here and fully appreciate what Ruth has done. She's turned her back on the, the household that she grew up in and the nation that she was born into. She attached herself to another widow who, who can who cannot offer her anything. She comes to a new land, makes life in a new town called Bethlehem, is finding favor as she has gone out, but what a remarkable thing, and here she stands uh, before a man that she has no right to propose marriage to, really, but she goes for it. She is a picture of loyal love because she's there at that moment and what becomes crystal clear is she has her mother-in-law's best interests in her heart. Now, the sweet thing is her mother-in-law has had her interests, her best interests at heart. And now we're going to see a man who puts the interests of these two women, honestly, above his own. So let's look at Boaz and his response. He responds to this appeal, first of all, by blessing Ruth. Verse 10 May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Oh, I want to know the details. Like, how old was this guy? How old was she? We're just going to have to wait until we get to heaven, and then we can, you know, set up a, a meal or a coffee meeting with them and say, hey, fill in the blanks. He's clearly at least a generation ahead of her because he makes reference to the fact that it would it would seem reasonable for her to look at a group of younger men, whether poor or rich. And he is overwhelmed by the kindness she's showing to him. And again, this is that, that word that appears all through this text, kesed, that's a poor pronunciation of the Hebrew word, but it speaks of loyal love and devotion. Kindness, in many ways, just can't quite capture it. I'm not sure any uh, of our English words can quite capture the strength of, of what's loaded into this word and the substance of it. It has to do with loyal love. It has to do with devotion. Yes, it has to do with kindness. But she's, first of all, showing kindness to her mother-in-law, but she's actually showing it to this older guy. And she's not going after young men. It makes you wonder if from Boaz, Boaz's perspective, she actually had better options. You see some humility reflected in his heart. He's certainly not wielding the power of his wealth, the power of his respect and honor in the community. He's actually humbly amazed that she just proposed marriage. This loyal love, this kindness, he is seeing, is establishing a really significant trajectory. And I, and I want you to think through this with me because it actually begins to explain why would a young 
woman, even from a younger generation, propose marriage to an older guy. Because they might not, if, if we just took the physical appearance and took even the, the backgrounds and personal histories, we might say that's not really a good match. We first met Ruth when she married into the family of Elimelech and married one of the sons while she was in Moab. That didn't go so well. It was a season of heartbreak, but that was a moment in her life, if you want to throw in a little note here, where we might say that she was seeking rest in the household of an earthly husband, and that's not a wrong thing to do. That's not a sinful thing to do. But then after the deaths of her husband, her, her brother-in-law, and, and the, the sorrow that she and Orpah shared and Naomi, uh, she stood at a crossroads of faith, and that's where she chose to follow God ultimately. And as, as Boaz had noted in chapter 2, that's where she began to seek her rest and refuge under the wings of God himself. And so this life with Naomi has turned in really beautiful ways and now potentially is about to begin a new chapter and that's life with Boaz. I point this out simply because there is a clear trajectory of God honoring faith that's unfolding. That's part of what makes her so attractive to Boaz and it's part of what makes him so attractive to her. Because she's had experience with a husband who was part of a household that abandoned the land of promise and symbolically abandoned the promises of God. But Boaz stuck it out, and we don't know the whole history. How hard was it for him through those 10 years? How hard was it for him to keep the family business going, to employ workers, to put just enough food on his head? But we don't know any of those details, but there is enough for us to say this is a man of faith in God, and we're certainly see that, seeing that play out now. Hold on to that thought for a second. He not only blesses her, but he assures her. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Ruth had all kinds of things to fear, didn't she? I, I'm sure her heart was in her throat when she went down to the threshing floor that night. First of all, will, I be, will he be there? Is this going to play out the way it should? Will he accept me? Will he be, you know, I, I don't want to scare him and startle him where he would run me off in the middle of the night. Will other people see this? I mean, there were the immediate fears, but there were the big picture fears as well. God's given us enough grain to, you know, have meals on our table and things seem to be going really well, but there's no guarantee for tomorrow. I'm still a Moabite. I'm still a widow. I'm still an impoverished woman. What are my assets really in light of the big scheme of things? She has really good reasons to fear, but Boaz assures her, do not be afraid. And then surprisingly says, I will do for you all that you ask. And you know, if, if you read this story as I do and find yourself again and again coming to the place of saying, you know, I've never met Boaz, I really like this guy, but he reminds me of the Lord. Well, that's the whole point. Because you know, when you and I come to the Lord and sometimes even propose things in prayer, he delights in that. And he loves to bless you and he loves to assure you, even as this man found it uh, a joy and delight to bless and assure Ruth. And I pause for a second and say, what are your fears today? And, and don't be too quick to excuse him and be like, well, I should have more faith and these fears are stupid and I'm gonna be embarrassed to say, no, that's part of being human. The question is, what will you do with those fears? And here again is a beautiful story. We, we have someone so much greater than Boaz that we can go to and say, Lord, here it is. Look at the second half of verse 11. For all my fellow townsmen know that you 
are a worthy woman. He praises her. And we've seen that little term before used in reference to Boaz that he was a worthy man. I was intrigued this week to find out that this term, worthy woman, is, uh, it appears in Proverbs 12, verse 4. It's translated a little differently. And again, when you're trying to put something that was originally written in Hebrew into English, you, you sometimes have to choose a, a variety of, of words and, and convey that meaning. But in Proverbs 12, verse 4, we read, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Well, a worthy woman. It's the same terminology. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Well, now it begins to make sense, and it's part of the reason I put that little trajectory arrow on the board. It's not just a matter of the direction her life is headed, but the, the character of her life is a perfect match for a worthy man. No wonder they would see this proposal as having all kinds of upside. And is it an interesting that God doesn't tell us anything about their physical appearance, doesn't tell us anything uh, about, you know, the family backgrounds or, you know, the hobbies that they might share that would say, oh, they, they would be a good match. It has to do with character and direction of life. I'm not saying these things are bad, and sometimes I've done a fair amount of premarital counseling through the years, and there are tests you can take to see uh, how you match up, and um, I don't want to pick on any particular, you know, tests or systems of, of scoring and analyzing all of that, but I think the Lord is bringing us to something that all of us ought to consider, and that has to do with the alignment of faith and character. It's part of the reason that the Lord does say, if I can take a little rabbit trail for a moment, don't be unequally yoked together. Evangelistic dating is never a good idea, and evangelistic marriage is an unbiblical idea. You who have aspirations of being married one day, whether young or old, don't settle for what you just see on the surface that initially looks good to you. You need to know that person well enough to know what, what is the trajectory of life what is the foundation of the soul? And does the day-to-day character that manifests itself demonstrate a deep, abiding, sincere faith in this God? And when you can start checking those boxes, you might have a match. Physical beauty fades. Anybody can put on their best behavior for even a number of months in the dating process. And how many people have made the mistake of thinking, well, I know there's some problems there, but I can change that guy or I can change that gal. Hmm. No, you can't. So it begins to make sense. The reason these two make a good match has to do with internal issues, character. So Boaz, coming out of this, he makes promises. He promises to redeem Ruth. And he does it with integrity before the community. And it it adds a little bit of tension for us as we read through the story. He says, I am a redeemer, but there's one nearer than I. And we're like, wait a second. The story isn't supposed to run like this. How's this going to go? Well, that's next week. We'll find out about that. But he says to her, remain tonight in the morning if, if he will redeem you good. And for our perspective, like, no, that's not good. Ruth doesn't want to be married to whoever that guy is. And Boaz, you know, you kind of want him to step up. But I think what's beautiful here is that there's not only this uh, noble character that's emerging where he honors the laws of God and, 
and the, the cultural practices that are in place, but I think it's also an expression of this man's faith. He doesn't feel any compulsion at this, play, at this point you know, to posture, to manipulate, to get in there and work the system and, and you know, come up with a plan for how he can persuade that other dude he shouldn't marry Ruth. I mean, we're going to see an interesting conversation next week as we come to chapter 4, but you just, you just have the sense that Boaz is, is like this picture of confidence and trust in God, and he's a strong dude, and, and she doesn't protest that at all. So he, he also strikes me as a guy who, like, once he says what he says, that's what he means. That's what we're doing. And then something sweet, in the, at the end of verse 13, I think you see Boaz protecting Ruth's reputation. He says, lie down until the morning. And he actually uses a term that could not, under any circumstances, be, be understood as having any kind of, of sexual connotation. Again, I just want to correct. I, I was dismayed this week to read some things in commentaries about how people want to, you know, send this a different direction than what the story really has for us. He's clearly protecting her from dangers she might encounter in the middle of the night. Why would you send a, a young, younger woman on her way back to her house when... Bad people could be out and about. Then you also see him saying, verse 14, she, or the, the storyteller, that she lays at his feet until the morning. But then he says, listen to this, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And you can kind of read that in, in one way where it's as if maybe some others woke up and like, what's going on over here? We hear a little conversation. He's like, hey, I'm going to tell you, just we don't need to be talking about this. So he, he seems to be guarding uh, her reputation and guarding her well-being here. Then verse 16, he provides again. What a generous man. Fills up that garment with six measures of barley, and again, it's just a, it's a heap of grain. And says, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, he's using the terminology that we encountered in verse one when Naomi, or in chapter one, when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, and everybody says, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. I went away full and I came back empty, empty-handed. Well, look how God continues to turn this thing for her. And that's one of the powerful points of the story. Those who make this God their shelter, who, who seek the shelter of his wings as he spreads over them, he doesn't leave them in a condition of empty-handedness. You may experience it for a moment, but it will never be the defining experience or characteristic of your life. So here is a woman who is seeing God actively answer her prayers and the cries of her heart. And though she had experienced the emptiness of famine, the emptiness of widowhood, she has returned now and begun to experience from God a fullness. And here, the immediate evidence of that is a generous, generous measure of barley to meet the physical need. But more than that, there's a generous man who has entered their lives and who will act as their redeemer. And so look at how the, this chapter ends. Mother-in-law who felt such pressure to find security, to find rest for her daughter-in-law, now says, I'm skipping to verse 18. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Uh, here's the first great truth. The Redeemer, first of all, is worthy, and I'm, I'm tying some things together, and you think through all that, that Boaz brings to the table here. He, he's a worthy man because he is able 
That is, he has the capacity to do things that these women could not do for themselves. He is wealthy, so he has the resources to draw upon. They've experienced his kindness, his generosity. They've experienced his protection and his provision. I mean, there's a long catalog of character traits and characteristics of this man that put their hearts at ease. And it's a beautiful parallel of our Redeemer, isn't it? And all that Boaz is comes to bear on this situation as he goes to work. And that's the most significant reason that these two women can now wait and rest because he's working. When Naomi says, wait, my daughter, uh, she uses terminology that really conveys the idea of just sit down and be calm. Ruth, you don't need to go back to the field today. We've got enough grain. There's food on the table. Let the man work. Naomi doesn't have to come up with any new plans. Doesn't have to scheme or connive. Nope, she's confident that Boaz will bring all of his personal qualities and resources to bear upon their situation and will settle the matter. That is, it's going to be brought to a finish. And, and what joy to know, he's not going to rest until it's done. That's not characteristic of every man. Every man wants to be this kind of hero, but the bottom line is some of us are just flat out lazy at certain moments, and so we start projects and never finish them, make promises and never keep them. But not this man, not this redeemer. You see, because Boaz is not resting but working, they can actually rest. There are a lot of things in this particular chapter that we can identify with, but I want to ask you, what character do you most closely identify with at this moment? Are you like Naomi, feeling a responsibility to provide security or rest for another family member, to be really specific? Another individual, another group that you feel like, if if I don't act on their behalf, then life is not going to be good for them. That's admirable. But the question is, what do you do? Maybe you just, well, I just got to work harder. I got to figure it out. I got to come up with a plan. I got to do something. Do you really? Have you made an appeal to your Redeemer? Where in humble, courageous, even audacious faith, you've said to him, Lord, this is the need. I really don't have the capacity, and I'm actually afraid to get in the middle of this because I could make it worse than it is at the moment. But would you act on our behalf? Or maybe you identify more with Ruth. There's a bit of a plan or a strategy underway, but you actually see greater potential. And and so the thought of making an appeal to someone like Boaz seems audacious, but when you pause for a moment, you think, you know what, I know the Lord. I know that he's kind. I know that he's generous. He's infinitely wealthy. He has all power in the universe. Like there's nothing he could not do. So you make an appeal to him. If you stand in Boaz's position for just a moment, before that night, I mean, you have to wonder, why, why would an eligible man like this remain single for so long? There's so much about him that we already admire, but he has been single for whatever reason. Again, we'll just have to get the full story when we meet him. Did, did you propose marriage and somebody turned you down? Did you experience some kind of great tragedy? You know, were you just a tortured soul at this moment that Ruth came to you? Well, we don't know those particular details, but it's clear he felt too old 
for someone like Ruth, but not from God's perspective and not from Ruth's perspective. All of these people are in need of something that they really don't have the capacity to provide for themselves, but there's God in the middle of it all and bringing it together just mysteriously and marvelously, isn't he? I watched an eight-minute video on MSNBC yesterday morning uh, with a political strategist and pollster. I'm not familiar with him, but his name is Frank Luntz. And he conducted a focus group on the current state of our nation, and they actually showed part of this Zoom call, I'm assuming, that he was conduct, as he conducted uh, this focus group. And it was interesting, too, that he intentionally chose uh, eight people, or, or half, I don't know, maybe it wasn't just 16, as I'm looking, I should have counted those up in advance, but half the people who participated had voted for uh, President Biden in the last election, the other half had voted for Donald Trump. So he's, he's actually conducting this focus group with a broad uh, sampling of political perspectives. And when he asked them each to choose one word to describe our nation, and if you can find this clip, you can hear them all, and you can watch them as they choose their word. Well, that, those are the words that they chose to describe our nation and our lives at this particular moment. And in the course of that conversation, every one of them expressed deep frustration that our leaders in Washington are tone deaf to what the ordinary person cares about and seemingly indifferent to the real needs of making a life day in and day out. And some even said, furthermore, they're ignorant. So far removed, just, just absolutely ignorant of what life for a person like me is really like. And as I watched that, I thought to myself, yep, we need a redeemer. We long for a deliverer. We long for a rescuer from the insanity of this moment. We would love to find somebody who would put our interests ahead of his or her own, wouldn't we? And you know, beloved, this story is planted in this particular section of the Old Testament, and we talked about the context in the days of the judges. It was a moment where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, but aren't you grateful to know that God was at work in the lives of the ordinary person who may not have felt that they had adequate representation in their capital city or had a leader, or in the context of Israel, judges who really would live with integrity and always do what was right for the people that they served. But there was a God in heaven who said, I am all of that, and I will be that for you, despite the cultural currents of your day, despite the, the characters you know, who exploit you and manipulate you for their own benefit, for their own glory. Look to me, find refuge in me, I will be your God. I'm not happy about the way culture sits at this particular moment, but oh, how my heart rejoices and sings over these great truths that you and I are not prisoners of this dark cultural moment. We really are not the, the slaves of a, a government that seems to be out of control at this particular moment or any other movement with our God in heaven with our God active in our lives. We can sing and we can rest and our Redeemer brings all that he is to bear upon the work he is doing in us and for us. Be confident of that. These stories are designed to teach us that and to reinforce it. 
Here's the question. Do you know the Redeemer? If you do, then you understand exactly what I'm talking about when I say you can rest. But if you don't know this Redeemer, you don't know his character, you don't know his capacity, you don't know the resources they can bring, I can understand how you would be terrified to wake up day to day and see, well, what new headlines are, are we staring at this morning? Matt made mention of the stock market. I mean, I, I'm not happy about that. It's a midterm election cycle. I don't know what to make of this. Gas prices have fallen. I, I talk about tone deaf. It was interesting that uh, the, the two hosts, MSNBC hosts, were talking about the fact that uh, they were like, what? After, after Frank Luntz, you know, played that clip and showed them those words, the hosts are sitting on there going like, wow, that, that's amazing that despite declining uh, pri gas prices and despite record employment, you know, that people still feel that way. And I'm like, talk about ignorant and tone deaf. Yeah, gas prices have come down from all-time highs, but they're still twice what they were two years ago. Oh, but that's right. You live in New York City, and somebody else drives you to work every day, and whatever car you might have fills it up for you. And you make enough money where, you know, 450 a gallon gas is not a huge deal. But to many of us, it is. But even as I listened to that, I thought, oh, Lord, it's all yours. Thank you. Just, just let me rest. Do you know the Redeemer? You know, the great thing is if you don't know him, you can begin that relationship with him today. Right where you are, in, in your seat right now, silently, but from your heart, call upon him. Say, Lord, I, I've been trying to live life on my own. Been trying to do this without you. But I, I got nothing but liabilities and deficits. Would you intervene? And he would. He will, because that's his nature.